One of the worst insults you can use to describe someone these days is to call them a religious zealot. Uh, Recently, a book came out describing Vice President Mike Pence as a Christian zealot. Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett was labeled by some detractors as a zealot. Uh, Non-Christians are sometimes called zealots too, Muslims, Mormons, Hindus, and the term zealot is also applied to uh, non-religious types. There are political zealots, there are sports zealots. I've met salespeople who are zealots. They are way too excited about their products. Steak knife zealots, dietary supplement zealots. To be labeled a zealot, not a compliment. Uh, One online dictionary defines zealotry as, quote, when someone takes a religious, cultural, or political belief too far, refusing to tolerate other perspectives or conflicting beliefs. We all know zealots. Sometimes they rub us the wrong way. Uh, They can be abrasive and intolerant. In worst-case scenarios, zealots can become quite violent. Given the near-universal distaste for zealotry, it should surprise us, then, that God, in the Bible, introduces himself to us as a zealot. Zealousness is apparently one of God's core character attributes. We see this in the book of Isaiah. We're studying Isaiah, for those of you who don't know, we're studying Isaiah here at Rooftop in an extended 10-month study. Isaiah was a Jewish prophet who lived eight centuries before Christ. God had commanded Isaiah's people, the nation of Judah, to live holy lives, be a light to the nations. For the most part, they did the exact opposite of that, though. Uh, God sent Judah prophets to warn them to stop But they didn't, so God sends them one final prophet to announce to them their imminent destruction at the hands of their enemies. This prophet's name is Isaiah. And Isaiah leaves behind a big book of prophetic poetry that is uh, beneficial for us to learn from in all sorts of ways. It's so big, though, Isaiah's book, that we've broken it up into mini-series, and this third mini-series is called The Lord Is. We learn a lot in Isaiah about God, who he is, what he's like, what he likes. Uh, we've learned that the Lord is sovereign, the Lord is righteous, the Lord is just, the Lord is compassionate, the Lord is angry. Uh, next week, Pastor Jason is actually going to be up here telling us about the Lord, the Lord who is comforting. So this is Jason's like first sermon up here on the rooftop stage in like 10 years. Not going to want to miss it. Yay! Uh, but something else we learn from Isaiah is that the Lord is zealous. According to scripture, our God is a zealot. We read this throughout the book. Uh, In chapter 26, for example, the prophet writes, Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. In chapter 42, he writes, the Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. And in chapter 59, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. But maybe my favorite zeal passage actually comes from Isaiah chapter 9, and it's very appropriate uh, for the Christmas season. You might actually recognize the passage. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet writes these words, For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The Lord is zealous, full of zeal. Our God is a zealot. Now, honestly, that doesn't sound very good to us to think of God as a zealot. Like I said, the label has some negative connotations. But let me go ahead and make this just even more complicated. Not only is our God a zealous God, he's also a jealous God. Not only is our God full of zealotry, he's also full of, full, full of jealousy. You see, the Old Testament was written in the language of Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word for zeal is the word kana. And that word is part of a word group that can be translated zealous, but it can also be translated jealous. That one word can mean both, zealous and jealous. As we read, for example, in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Kanah, like zealous. Or a bit later in Exodus chapter 34, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God because of Kanah. That could very well read, my name is Zealous. I'm a zealous God. So apparently our God is not only a religious zealot, he's also a jealous religious zealot and he's proud of it. He says his name is Jealous. Hi, I'm God. Friends call me Jealous. Nice to meet you. Give me nuts. So these are two disturbing images. Like I pointed out, when we think of zealots, we think of violent radicals. Or when we think of jealousy, we think of children who want what other children have. Or we think of adults who want what other adults have. Or we think of adults who want whatever other children have. Or we think of possessive ex-boyfriends who are jealous when their ex starts dating another guy. For a while, I was actually thinking of opening this sermon with a video clip on, on jealousy to uh, illustrate God's kanah. But all the jealousy clips were disturbing and violent, lots of stabbing. I like to push the envelope here at Rooftop, but you will be assured to know I do have my limits. So what's the deal then? What's the Lord saying about himself here? Is he a religious fanatic? Is he a possessive, jealous boyfriend? Well, let's give ourselves a proper definition of zeal first. God's zealotry and jealousy aren't what we're afraid they are. What zeal really is, I'm going to, is this. I'm going to define God's zeal, his jealousy, his kana, this way. It refers to his ardent devotion to his cause and his steadfast defense of his people. That's what the kana of God is, his ardent devotion to his cause and his steadfast defense of his people. And that's a positive thing, too, not a negative thing. When people talk about religious zealots today, they talk about intolerant radicals. Now, God is radical, but he's different from that. He doesn't fly planes into buildings or blow up abortion clinics. He's devoted to the cause, but he is gracious and compassionate about it. And regarding God's jealousy, he's not a stalker. He's just a father devoted to his people. He hates when he sees us give our hearts and minds to other gods and things which are unhealthy and self-destructive. He's like any jealous dad like that. I mean, if you're a dad out there, you might know the feeling here. Imagine your dad, or imagine your daughter, rather, falls in love with a total loser. Just imagine this. Some of you don't have to imagine that. It might have already happened. (laughs) 
But imagine if it hasn't. Imagine that it happened. That your, your daughter falls in love with a total loser, like an absolute boob. Somehow, this ignoramus wins the heart of your precious little girl. Are you going to just sit back and watch this train wreck happen right in front of you? No way. You're going to step in. I would. I'd respect my daughter's freedom to make her own choices, but I'm going to let her know that this isn't good. I've had to intervene in the love lives of my children before without apology. I do it because I'm a jealous father. I do it because I love my children. That's what Isaiah is describing here. God is ardently devoted to his cause and his people. He is so because he is a God who loves us. Uh, One preacher that I listened to this week, Alistair McGrath, put it this way. He said, God's zealotry comes from his jealousy, and his jealousy comes from his love. God's zealotry comes from his jealousy, and his jealousy comes from his love. Because God loves us, he is jealous of other things that compete for our heart. God is jealous of money and goods, boyfriends, girlfriends, video games, cheap entertainment, All these things can distract us from him. God is jealous of us like that. And because he is jealous for us, he's going to zealously act to protect us. And that's what might be most noteworthy about God's zeal here. What's important about God's zealousness as we read it in scripture is that God's zeal compels him to act. Think back to the passage in Isaiah 9 where God says that a king will reign on David's throne. A child is born to us who will reign on the throne upholding it with justice and righteousness. And I love that final line. What does the author say? He says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And in another place in Isaiah, we read, out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is a refrain that Isaiah repeats to tell us something. He's telling us that God's zeal, which is a thing, will lead him to action. God's zeal is a force compelling him to act. This is actually important. God is not some laid-back deity who sits back in the heavens and lets things unfold the way they do. God doesn't have to keep himself motivated to care for what happens here on earth. God doesn't have to drink a Red Bull to care about what's going on down here. God has a purpose for us that he intends to see fulfilled. He has plans for us that he is going to accomplish. What plans? He's going to rid the world of sin. He's going to bring his kingdom to earth. He's going to raise us from the dead. He's going to build his church. He's going to do these things. He's going to do these things by his zeal. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish these things. He's not kind of loosely committed to these things and hoping that maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe they work out. He's devoted to them. He's consumed, Scripture says, by his zeal. We see this in the life of Christ. Eight centuries after the ministry of Isaiah, Jesus of Nazareth stepped onto the scene as the Messiah, the prophet Isaiah foretold. And one of the things that people noted about Jesus was the zeal and the jealousy that burned inside of him. Jesus himself was consumed with a passion and a fire that people took note of. One time, for example, Jesus was visiting the temple in the capital city of Jerusalem. Maybe you know the scene that I'm about to describe. Jesus goes to visit the temple in Jerusalem, and he does not like what he finds. He finds money changers, salespeople, selling animals 
for exorbitant prices to poor people so that they would have a sacrifice to make at the altar. He finds people changing money, making profits in the temple courts. This is the exact opposite reason that God commanded them to build the temple in the first place, to be a place of prayer, and they had turned it into a marketplace. And how does Jesus react? Not well. John describes his reaction. He flips the tables, uses a whip to drive the merchants out. He yells at them, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And at that moment, Jesus' disciples remember something. They remember a prophecy that is said of the Messiah in the Old Testament. As John records the scene, he writes, his disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's a prophecy from the Psalms about the Messiah. It foretold that the Messiah, the coming king of Israel, would be consumed by zeal for the house of God. So we see in Jesus a glimpse of the zealotry and the jealousy and the kanah of God. He's not going to stand idly by while his house is turned into a marketplace. He's going to react even angrily. He is consumed by zeal. That's what he says. He's consumed by zeal. Now, to be consumed by something uh, means to be overwhelmed by it. But what else does it mean to be consumed by something? It means to be destroyed by it. When we consume something, it means we eat it. We use it. We deplete it. We destroy it. Honestly, this is probably what the disciples were thinking about, too, at least later. John, who records the scene, knows what happens to Jesus at the end of his life. He is killed. He is consumed. He is destroyed. He is destroyed because he would not stop. He would not stop antagonizing the religious rulers. He is destroyed because he would not stop performing miracles and teaching the people. He is killed. He is destroyed because he would not give the mission a rest. He is going to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth even if it killed him. He is consumed by zeal, and it did. It consumed him. It killed him. That's how deep God's zeal runs for us. He is that devoted to his cause and to his people. He is so zealous for us that he would die if necessary, which, as it turned out, was necessary. Our God is jealous. Our God is zealous. His name is zealous. His name is jealous. His name is Kanah. But now we get to the question. What's the question? So, so what? <laughs> <laughs> that is the question. <laughs> so what? I like the verb there too. What does this mean for us? So what? Application. Well, it actually means a lot, if I can say so. Uh, By way of application, I think the matter of God's zealotry and jealousy, his cannot, raises two questions in my own heart. It's my heart. that I think are worth asking. Uh, Two questions concerning God's zealousness. The first question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is zealous for you? Do you believe that he's jealous for you? As you've already read in Isaiah, let your enemies see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. God is zealous for his people. Let the world see your zeal for your people. That means he's devoted to us. He loves us. He won't abandon us. But do we believe that? I don't know about you, but if you're like me, you want to believe that. But on certain days, you're maybe not sure. I mean, I know the Bible says God loves me. Preachers tell me that God loves me with incomparable devotion. 
But I don't always feel that. I don't always see that. In fact, oftentimes I feel the opposite. On certain days, my life seems to really kind of stink. Really terrible things happen to me, my loved ones. But it's not just me. Uh, The global church continues to struggle. God's people are tortured and killed by the thousands around the world. Here in America, the Christian church continues to, in my opinion, be an embarrassment caught up in moral hypocrisy and politics. The world continues to veer out of control toward a future that is hazy at best, but looks an awful lot like total devastation. (laughs) Creation itself continues to suffer from pollution, bearing the weight of our abuse and neglect. So if God is indeed zealous for his people, his name, his church, his creation, why does it look like he's so disinterested? If God is indeed jealous for his people, why do so many of our prayers go unanswered? Maybe you know my question. Well, mostly, I think that it's because we look in the wrong place. Uh, We think God's zeal for us would manifest itself in our lives if everything went well. We think that if God truly was head over heels, devoted to us, jealous for us, we would get the job, not get the cancer. We would have our best life now, as one false preacher has put it. But that's not how the God of the Bible has chosen to reveal his zealousness for us. We see God's zeal for us not in how perfect our lives are. We see God's zeal in the life of his son for us. God knows our suffering. God knows the condition of the world. God knows that we will all die. But he did not stand idly by. He came down to earth as a man, enduring the humiliation. He mingled with the people to reassure them that in the midst of everything we suffer here on earth, God still loves us. He died on a cross as a payment for our sins so that we could live debt-free. He rose his son from the dead so that we could know we have that future to look forward to. He built the church so that here on earth we would have a spiritual family to belong to. He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we have God's strength to live our lives. And he promises to come again and restore all things so that we can live forever. So sure, yeah, sometimes our lives might really stink at best. But they don't always stink. We are blessed in so many ways. And besides which, even aside from the difficulties that we face in life, it doesn't mean that he hasn't jealously and zealously committed to us and willing to do whatever it takes so that we can live forever with him. Uh, Before bed at night, each of my children has had a blessing that I pray over them. It's a nice little moment that we have before they close their eyes or pretend to close their eyes and then stay awake. And each child's uh, blessing is actually a prayer from Scripture and it's their special blessing. My late son Mitchell's blessing will always remind me of God's zeal, his determination on our behalf. His blessing comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul writes this, May the God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Mitch would always kind of fill in at the end and say, he will do it. 
The one who called you will accomplish his purpose for you. He will sanctify you through and through. He will make you blameless for the coming age. Despite what's going on in your life, despite how alone and abandoned and poor and broke you may feel, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish these things. He will do it. So don't believe whatever you may believe about God's rumored disinterest in your life. He is jealously and zealously committed to you in your future. He will do it. So that's question number one. Do you believe that? Question number two. It's different. Does it inspire you? Does God's zeal inspire you? It should. You see, as God himself is jealous for us, we should be zealous for him. As Paul writes in the book of Romans, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. God's zealous commitment to us should inspire in us a zealous commitment to him. Does it? I know too many Christians to know, I mean, maybe it does for some of us, but I know so many Christians to know that zeal is not necessarily one of our defining characteristics. We can be lazy, we can be apathetic, we can be distracted, we can be half-hearted, we can be reluctant, we can be hesitant, we can be fearful. Why? Well, maybe we don't want to look like zealots. Like I said, nobody wants to be labeled a radical. I mean, some days not even I want to be labeled a radical. I walk around downtown during the Cardinal games and I see preachers standing on crates with bullhorns and I kind of hide my face ashamed for them. I hope nobody like, looks at me as a Christian like I'm looking at that guy as a Christian. Dude, what a radical. In our culture, it's, it's fine to be religious and all, but it's important in our culture that you not take it too far. It's okay to be Christian, but it's less okay to talk about it, act on it, let the world know about it. We all know that fear that holds us back. But I think the bigger reason that we lack in zeal is because we don't fuel the fire. In the Bible, God's zeal is described as a fire that burns. And what do fires need? Fuel. Our fires don't burn very bright for God because we don't stay fueled up. What is fuel for us? Coming to church is fuel for us. Uh, fellowship with others is fuel for us. Sermons, teaching are fuel for us. Christian media is fuel for us. Scripture is fuel for us. Worship is fuel for us. We need this fuel to stay zealous for God, but we don't stay fueled up. If anything, we shortchange ourselves the fuel we need. Uh, for example, I try to eat light and healthy to keep my hourglass figure. I want to make sure the bikini fits next summer. Just picture it. No, don't, don't. For two, I was too late there, wasn't I? Some of you. So for a while, and in order to just kind of, you know, eat well, I would skip lunch just to minimize calorie intake. But by mid-afternoon, I'd be groggy, I'd be tired, I'd be exhausted, I'd be barely productive, falling asleep at my desk, I realized this is, this is not a good plan. I'm going to have to come up with some other plan other than not eating. I need calories to keep my zeal. The same is true for us on a spiritual level. We don't stay fueled up, or we fuel up with junk food. Things that aren't healthy for us, unhealthy relationships, media addictions. You know what that stuff is? That's empty calories, empty spiritual calories. That's just stuff you put in your stomach that doesn't feed your soul. We skip church because we're busy or tired. We don't sign up for small groups or serving teams because, you know, well, we'll, we'll do it later. We've got other things to do. But we can't grow that way. The Bible calls that something. The Bible calls that quenching the spirit. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. The Holy Spirit inside of us, it's a spark inside of us, 
And what can we do? We can fan that spark into a flame through study and prayer and fellowship and giving. We can fuel it or we can douse it. We can quench it with apathy and disinterest. And eventually what happens when we quench the spark of the Holy Spirit? It just goes out. I've seen it happen. We've all seen it happen. That sort of thing actually happens. Which brings us to communion. On the third Sunday of every month here at Rooftop, we take communion together. Communion is something that followers of Jesus have been practicing for generations. In our understanding, communion is a living reenactment of who we are as God's people. We are his children gathered around the dinner table, and we are his family. We are his children because of what his one and only son Jesus did on the cross. Jesus went to the cross, died, making a payment that we owe to God because of our sin. And because of what Jesus did, we can be forgiven and we can live forever with God and each other. When we eat from the bread, we're reminded of his body, which was broken for us. When we drink from the cup, we're reminded of his blood, which was poured out for us. So communion, in a way, communion is our fuel. Our fuel for the fire, which flames the spirit into a blazing zeal. Now, of course, Communion itself isn't that energizing. There actually aren't a lot of calories in this little cup. I actually looked it up on the box that contains them. How many calories are contained in in one self-serve communion cup? Not enough to list on the box. (laughs) But the energy that we receive from communion isn't the bread, it's not the wine, it's what they represent. What do they represent? They represent the gospel. The gospel is the message that God loves us so zealously, so jealously, that he couldn't keep himself in heaven. He loves us too much to watch us give our affections to other things, other people, other interests. So in his love, in his jealousy, he came down to earth to do something about it. He came to earth to tell us of his plans, plans to rescue us from sin and create a better future, plans to give us new bodies and a new earth and a new society. These plans, to be sure, seem far-fetched. They seem impossible. What? Do we think we're going to live forever? What? Do we think God's going to reconstitute our bodies from the dust of the earth? What? Do we think God's going to recreate the earth and rid the world of sin? That's impossible. That's ridiculous. Well, yeah, it is ridiculous, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. It's just a miracle. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty can do these things. The one who promised them is faithful and will do it. Here at Rooftop, we practice open communion, which means that anybody can participate, anybody who identifies themselves as a follower of Jesus, regardless of church home or denomination, anybody who identifies themselves as a follower of Jesus Christ. If you would, go ahead and take out your self-serve communion cup. Peel back the top layer. Eat the wafer, remembering the words of Jesus. This is my body given for you. I'll peel back the next layer, drink the juice. Remembering the words of Jesus. Mine's not coming off. (laughs) I hate COVID. (laughs) Yeah, there it is. Remembering the words of Jesus, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a necessary paradigm shift for me. When I look at my life, sometimes it all doesn't always feel like you care that much. Like you're kind of hoping things work out for me, but we'll see. It would be cool if they did, but no skin off your back if they don't. And for that same reason, I wonder sometimes how much you really care about the world you created. Are we too far gone? I wouldn't blame you if you thought that we were, because it certainly looks like that. But we get a different picture in Isaiah of a zealous God, of a jealous God who refuses to let go and who is determined in his zeal to rescue us from sin and death. So determined that he came to earth as a man, not to make our lives perfect, but to make them more perfect eventually. Rescuing us from death, making a way for us to live forever, removing from us the the burden of our guilt, our shame. Your zeal is so, for us, is so great that it consumed you, it killed you on the cross. And that's what communion reminds us of. I pray that that zeal might inspire us to live radical lives, zealous lives, jealous of ourselves and careful not to give our affections and our heart to empty calories that do nothing for us. Help us stay focused on you. I pray for this week. It's a weird holiday season. Everything's weird this year. This week is too. But we still have the opportunity to live zealous lives for you. Lives of devotion to other other people. Generosity. Pray for Mexico as we head down there. We want to build homes for people who don't have any. Bless that trip. Bless us in with your zeal. We close our prayer time this morning, Father, by praying together the words of the Lord's Prayer, words that have words that your son, Jesus, taught his disciples to pray, and words that um, Christians have been praying together for generations. Words that will appear on the screen for those who need them. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.